in the names of God, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. Amen. Amen. For many are called, but few are chosen. It's wonderful to be back again, both earlier for in-person worship after a fashion, as well as for this virtual gathering. The first wave of the pandemic kept me otherwise occupied for a time. I feel a bit like Satan in the book of Job, arriving on the scene and being questioned by God. Where hast thou been, Satan? Up and down and all around thy world, or as much as one can in a lockdown. The gospel today is one of the harder, or perhaps harsher ones, in our lectionary, and many preachers choose to address it by preaching from the epistle instead, with its familiar and comforting turns of phrase that seem to be part of the very air we breathe. Peace that passes all understanding, truth, honor, justice, purity, and excellence as human attributes. We can settle into those words like a comfortable old sweater or a down comforter on one of these cold mornings. The gospel offers us a very different set of images. Cries and gnashing of teeth, cast into the outer darkness, bound hand and foot, cities burned and people destroyed. This parable shows us why the theologian and ethicist William Herzog calls parables a form of subversive speech, and why the late Flemish theologian Edward Schielebeck called parables stories with teeth. Parables as a literary form, seek to instruct us in paths of desirable behavior and seek to break open the mysteries of theology by creating some imagined narrative setting and then comparing that setting to the theological notion under consideration. The word parable itself is derived from the Greek word parabole, to compare. In this instance, Rabbi Jesus is using this parable to explain the nature and the political economy of the kingdom of heaven, to which I shall return in a moment. Parables ask us to do several things as we try to unwrap their message and delineate their meaning. First, we need to consider how they were understood by the first people who heard them. That is, how do we understand their historical context? All literature is written in a given historical moment to which it responds, overtly or covertly. All literature is inevitably shaped by the moment of its composition, the lived experience of its writer. Moby Dick, for example, was written in the context of an era when whaling was an essential industry for a growing and industrializing America and a source of great wealth for communities not far from where we all are at this moment. It was also a commentary on a leadership and a society, a vessel and its captain that has lost its moral way, as Starbuck observes that Ahab's obsession with hunting the white whale has turned the ship away from its real purpose, the commercial harvest of as many whales as they could possibly manage. He could also be speaking about the America of that moment, which was so obsessed with race and slavery that it had lost its way from the lofty promises of its own founding documents. So this parable, like all parables, must be understood from the vantage point of its moment in history. But that we still hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it means that it also has a meaning and a valence that transcends its own time and becomes part of ours. The canon was assembled generations after the original followers of the Jesus movement 
had spread over large parts of the globe to places dramatically different than the Palestine of Jesus' time. Of all the stories, gospels, letters, and poems that were available, only a subset was assembled into the emerging canon. These were the works that spoke to the theologic preferences and beliefs of that group of the early Jesus movement, which had triumphed over other groups within that movement and were emerging as the church. Stories which became part of the canon thus had some universality to them, speaking to differing peoples in differing settings, but also expressing a worldview that was compatible with the central theses of the leaders of an emerging church. So our second task is to understand this very difficult story in our own time. Herzog's notion of parable as subversive speech is firmly grounded in the understanding of the story in its day. Rabbi Jesus is once again trying to explain the nature of the somewhat enigmatic notion of the kingdom of heaven, his turn of phrase for the beloved community that will be established on earth by living into a life that aligns with the will of the Almighty. And that kingdom of heaven seems to follow rules and practices that are at complete odds with both the secular Jewish community in which the movement lives, as well as the religious life as it was then being practiced. The community in which they live was one of a brutal hierarchy. A generation before, a war of succession between rival families claiming the kingship of Judea had led to one side achieving victory by allying themselves to the forces of the Roman Empire. Once invited in, Rome didn't leave. Most of the area was under the titular control of puppet kings and nobles who served at Rome's pleasure. It was far cheaper to rule through local vassals than to muster all the political and military machinery needed for a full occupation. One vassal, however, had proved so incompetent he'd been replaced by a Roman official. Pontius Pilate held that office during Jesus' time. The ruling family was viewed as corrupt and not particularly observant of Jewish laws and practices. Some compliant scribes had interpreted parts of Jewish law to permit the wealthy to begin accumulating land from poor farmers unable to pay the annual temple tax. While mortgaging land was against the laws of Israel, advances against the annual temple tax were permitted as long as collateral was offered. The collateral was land, and the wealthy had been able in the previous generation to force large numbers of small farmers off their land, creating huge wealth in great estates that raised goods for export to the Roman heartland. These wealthy are the original guests invited to the wedding. I would argue the king, who we are told is the incarnation of the kingdom of heaven, that is, God the Almighty, has invited this group of wealthy to a wedding feast, and these grandees have rejected those messengers. Some they ignored, some they killed. All refused to come to the wedding feast of the king and the kingdom. The king then kills them all and destroys their city. The original listeners of this parable would have had no difficulty assigning the role of these imagined rich to the wealthy collaborators who forced their parents off their land and made themselves huge profits in the wine and oil trades. This is the subversion of the first half of the story. The kingdom of heaven will bring justice and mete out punishment to those with guilty fortunes. But then the listeners would have heard about others who were invited, the lowborn, the people milling about in the street, the good and the bad, all are invited to the feast. In this invitation, Rabbi Jesus rejects the constructs of many observant Jews of his own time. Invitation to the divine banquet 
is not limited people is not limited to people who keep the laws, who keep the feasts, who pay their temple tax, who bring their children for ritual naming. Those who do not keep the law punctiliously, and those who do, are both invited. The good and the bad, as they would have been defined at the time. Rabbi Jesus is making the theologically subversive argument that the law and its observance is not what determines who is invited to the banquet. One's humanity alone is sufficient to receive the invitation, the call. What happens next then tells us what the original listeners were expected to do and to be. And that is to be present in the moment. They were invited to a wedding, and yet one man is not dressed in the ceremonial robes reserved for weddings that all people had, modest or grand. That man had his thoughts elsewhere, where we are unclear. But he is not present to the wedding in his person. And so the king again becomes enraged and has him bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. Many were called, few were chosen. The final element of Jesus' message to the original audience was this. The current order would be overturned, the rich would be cast down, and the lowly invited and embraced by the creator of the universe. The hungry will be filled with good things, and the rich sent away empty. But the story did not end with the mere reversal of fortunes. The last were first, and the first were last. But those invited had another quite explicit requirement made of them. Those invited, those called, needed to be fully present to that moment and its demands. If invited to a wedding, then wear a wedding ring. And if invited to a pandemic, and its complete revelation of a truth we have all known far too long and pretended we did not know, the fundamental structural racism of our society, then dress accordingly. We who hear this parable in these days have to contemplate what it means for us and where we see ourselves in this narrative. The arc of the professional lives of physicians of my generation has been anchored by epidemics. When I was in medical school in the San Francisco Bay Area, the disease we know as HIV-AIDS first appeared. Frightening and mysterious, its transmissions at first unclear, its threat undeniable, it was terrifying. And the behavior of many was craven and fearful, and the behavior of a handful was brave and resolute and compassionate. It was also often surprising. The largest public hospital in the city of San Francisco charged with protecting and treating the health of all, regardless of status, refused for a time to perform orthopedic surgery, which is quite bloody, on persons with HIV, given the feared risk of transmission to the staff. The American Medical Association had removed all language from its code of ethics that required physicians to treat persons with incurable communicable disease regardless of risk to the physician during the 1950s. In a move of smug, scientific triumphalism, it was felt that modern medicine and its antibiotics made such promises moot and a bit quaint. As a result, a secular hospital had no real grounds by which they could insist on physicians treating persons with HIV-AIDS, since in those days it was indeed both incurable and communicable. The Roman Catholic Hospital Association, perhaps with a longer worldview, had never removed such language from its code of ethics. Ironically then, in the early days of the plague, 
the place that men with HIV AIDS could have surgeries performed was in the Roman Catholic hospitals of the Bay Area. I cannot say who was good or bad in that calculus, but I do know who was present to the moment. Many were called, few were chosen. The last era of my generation's medical careers will be dominated by another epidemic. I spent the last four months of my time as residency training director from the March lockdown to the handover to my successor on the 1st of July, coping with the extraordinary pivots the pandemic demanded of us as a system. The details are unimportant, but the lessons learned are desperately vitally important to our continued struggle with this illness and the horrible way it has revealed all the weaknesses and rot in our medical system. I spent much of the first few months speaking with young doctors and medical students who had never really considered that their profession could put them in harm's way. As a profession, we had been very good at teaching some of the Aristotelian virtues, prudence, patience, kindness. We'd spent very little time contemplating another virtue which they needed in abundance, courage. None of them, in the end, asked to be refused, but they had to do some difficult soul-searching and consideration of what they were here to do. They needed to live in that present moment fully and with a confidence that they didn't lightly completely feel. And as we pivoted to an all-virtual outpatient world and sent home attending faculty from inpatient services if their own health issues put them at risk, and we restructured our inpatient services, all the inequities and structural racism and classism of our healthcare so-called system had a very, very bright light shone upon it. In adults and children alike, race and class made every outcome worse. This was the present moment from which we cannot and should not avert our gaze. I've recently taken on a new job as the director of ethics for one of the adult hospitals in the Longwood medical area. In my first days in this post, I spent most of my time on a listening tour, mostly by Zoom. I first sought out all the folks who had borne the full measure of the initial surge, ICU doctors and nurses, emergency department providers, and those whose units had been pressed into service as supplementary ICUs when the regular ICUs filled. I wanted to touch base as to how our ethics service might help them as the second surge arrives. And time and again, I heard heartbreaking stories who died and could not be saved. All providers in all times are haunted by the people we can't save. But time and again, I heard of how gut-wrenching it was to exclude a spouse, a son, a daughter from the bedside of a dying patient. This was all done for excellent public health reasons. After a huge and frightening peak, this region beat back the pandemic for time at least. But time and again, providers say, this isn't why I went into medicine. This isn't why I became a nurse, to forbid his wife, her son, their daughter from being at the bedside at the moment of death. One physician said, the hardest thing I have ever done as an ICU doctor is to hold the dying man's hand with one of mine bound and gloved, no real human touch, as I held up an iPad with the other hand so he could say goodbye to his wife by Zoom. And if we are present to this moment, if we show up for the wedding in the wedding robe, we need to be very clear. We need to be crystalline in the penetrance of our gaze that it did not have to be this way. Decades of neglect to our public health system, our utter failure to confront the social determinants of health, 
the venality we have permitted to dominate our political dialogue have all led to this moment. And while some may be judged by history to be more culpable than others, we need to acknowledge that we were all invited to the wedding banquet, the good and the bad, and we all needed to be properly attired. We have ended up like the prince in Romeo and Juliet speaking to the Montagues and Capulets, and I, for winking at your discords, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished, all are punished. If we do not climb out of the rubble of this calamity and recognize that all are invited to the banquet and all must be equally welcome, if we do not put on the appropriate garments for this moment, if we do not all resolve that the kingdom of heaven will be built here and now by us, then we will not need to be cast into the outer darkness. We will be there already. For many are called, but few are chosen.